Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Hi, Albrinthia Carter. It's so nice to meet you. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, what a guest today. The writer, director, performer, improviser, actor, Emmy Award winning writer. So well nominated. Nominated. <laughs> oh, nominated. Well, I, I'm giving you the Emmy, okay? I okay. <laughs> here you take take it now, okay? You got it in your closet. Okay. <laughs> because a black lady sketch show for which you were nominated is such a great show. It's just wonderful. And uh now you're in LA now, right? I am. And as of today, tentatively, the writer's strike has ended. Yes, it's a very exciting day um, to be here and to be in the industry. It's still tentative. Everything is still, you know, waiting for ink to dry and all of that. But we're all very, um, very excited um, and very hopeful. Uh, yeah. We'll be back to work soon. Yeah. And you are here in LA because you got a project you're working on, but I don't know if you can disclose it yet. I can't disclose it yet, but it's super fun. Um, and we actually, we finished it uh, last year, the end of last year, but, you know, production. So th things take a bit, a little bit longer, but, uh, and then the strike happens. So, um, but yeah, we I've got some exciting things on the horizon. So now that we're, um, ending the the end of the strike. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to talk about it um, more openly. And I know you've been performing with a stellar improv group, including our mutual friend Jay Suko and Jeff Michalowski, uh, Dave Rosowski, and a ton of other people. Yeah, yeah, it's been so fun. I've only had I had my first show performing with them last week, and. It, it felt like it was like a master class of improv, you know, and I'm, and I think I'm one of the newer players, but like newer by like 25 years, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it's like being a newbie, but not really, but it, it was, and everyone's like so kind and so, so talented and so giving, um, which is what you want in an improv show. Improvisers are basically the nicest people in the whole world and when I discovered improv I felt like I'm home yeah where has it been all my life it was so great so I want to hear about your improv story but let's start growing up and because I understand that you lived in some other countries at least one and your dad was in the military tell me a little bit about your family how many brothers and sisters you had and all that jazz yeah, um, I always have a fun story when people ask me, like, where are you from? I was like, well, this is going to be about a 10 minute story um, that I've gotten down to five minutes. But um, yeah, so I uh, my parents are from my family is from South Carolina. 
And my dad uh, was in the military. My mom was a teacher. And I was born in Texas, in Colleen, Texas. Um, and shortly after that, my, my family moved to Europe. And so we moved to Italy, where my middle sister was born. Um, then we moved to Germany and then back to South Carolina for about a year. And that's the only year I went to an American um I guess an American kind of public school um, where my youngest sister was born and then back to Germany where we stayed until I graduated from high school. So I, growing up, you know, living in Europe was the majority of, that was the experience that I, I knew. Um, and living in America and living in the U.S., um, that was the exotic location for me. That's really funny. But growing up in Europe, all the benefits, you said you were in Italy, uh -huh. Germany. Oh, my gosh. All the benefits. Now, when you were going through high school abroad, were you in an American school or what kind of school were you in? Yeah, I was in an, an American school. Um, and uh, when I was in school, what they call it, they call it the, uh, the Würzburg American High School. Uh, in Würzburg, Germany. So if anyone knows Germany, it's 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 about two hours east of Frankfurt. Um, and so it was a, a school just for military kids. Sometimes you'll have like the odd diplomat kid that goes to school with us. But for the most part, it was just American military kids that were all together kind of figuring all of this out at the same time, figuring out how to be like going through puberty and living in a different country at the same time, you know, <laughs> during wartime too, you know, when I was in sixth grade, you know, that's when we were, um, that's when De uh, Desert Storm happened. And so, you know, you kind of have all those things kind of converge um, during your formative years. It's always interesting. Oh. Was your dad over at Desert Storm? He was not. So he, my dad, um, my dad got out of, he changed his, I guess his concentration right before that. Um, he was in artillery. So he was one of the people that, you know, fired rocket launchers and things like that. Um, but he is a social worker by trade. So by training. So he actually, you know, he switched over to working in drug and alcohol counseling short before, um, <laughs> happened yeah yeah and so he didn't get didn't have to go but he did go he did serve later um during in Yugoslavia during that conflict and so um so he, he saw he saw he did see some action but he didn't go to Iraq um and the interesting thing is like you know the majority of my friends their parents all went to to Iraq and it was one of those things you just, it was kind of understood, you know, and you, you grow up in a, in a world where like actual war is a real thing. It was just kind of like our parents going to work, you know? And, and, you know, I'm a social worker, so that makes me really happy to hear he's a social worker. And I've done a lot of work in alcohol and drug and the military really needs that. And of course, you know, Viola Spolin was a social worker back at Hull House. So yeah. we're all connected. Now, what did your mom teach? And did she teach in one of your schools? So she was an elementary school teacher. And so she did. Um, and on a military base, the schools are usually right next to each other. And so, um, so we would, 
walk to work, walk to school and work together, basically. But um, she was an elementary school teacher. She taught mostly fourth and fifth grade. And towards the end of her career, um, she retired after 40 years. Um, she was a reading specialist. So she worked with students that were having um, just more trouble, you know, um, you know, getting into reading and getting into um, all the things that comes with that when you're a little kid trying to figure out how to how to read chapter books and things like that but which is a really simplistic way to put it but yeah yeah so she worked with kids and um and then my dad was a counselor so um cool. it was I, love that. I love that what a supportive uh environment and I don't want to jump ahead too much but you tell a great story in your TED talk behind the kuzu curtain about your parents coming to accompany you when you're going and photographing dilapidate well some would call them dilapidated houses but they were pieces of beauty for you so yeah. when, how old were you when you got your first camera uh, so I started uh, in photography. I want to say I started really seriously pursuing it in college. Um, I'd always been interested in photography my whole life because I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I wanted to be Christiane Amanpour, basically. <laughs> and that did not work out, but that's where I was. I went ahead. Um, and in college, I, you know, in studying that, I learned that I really enjoyed being behind the camera and not in front of the camera. I, I liked producing. I liked working the actual cameras in our in our, our university studio. Um, but I really love that part of it. But, you know, being in a time, you know, I was in school in the 90s and majoring in photography meant majoring in art, you know, and my parents were not pleased with that. They like you can't make a job, you can't get a job being an artist, which Obviously you can, but at that point you, they didn't think so. And so because of that, I took as many photography classes as I could without officially declaring um, gotcha. a minor or a major. So um, hey, what was your major in college? It was communications it was in, we called it mass communications at, the, at that point, but it was communications broadcast. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to work for CNN and and be over in the war zone with Christian and do 60 minutes, you know, all that stuff was yeah, really, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I still, there's a part of me that still like, if 60 minutes called me, I would say, yes, absolutely. I would <laughs> Uh, well, you've, got, you've got a beautiful speaking voice and a beautiful smile. So um, you'd be perfect on camera as you are on my camera today. Let's go back in time a little bit, though. So when you were a little girl, uh -huh. if you can go back to five or six or seven, what did you like to do? Did you make did you make up games or stories or what did you do? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is like you look at your childhood and I don't think a lot of people like they really kind of really look at the things that you like to do when you were a kid, right? I, I, and looking at all the things that gave me joy and made me happy have all led to this point and to this career. You just don't realize it because you're just playing, right? And, but the, but playing is how kids figure out who they are. Um, and that directly connects to adults doing improv to me. But, um, you know, back when I was a kid, I had like most girls, I had Barbies, you know, I had Barbies and two sisters. So that's all you really need to, for a right, friend, right. you know? Um, 
And so my sisters and I would put on these like dramatic, elaborate storylines with our Barbies. We had continuing story arcs um, that I that mostly I would make up and say like, okay, this is where we're going with this. And, you know, just kind of creating a, a show really um, with our Barbies, you know, we had names and, and family connections and, you know, those cliffhanger moments that we would just get really into playing. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I, and, you know, also I love playing video games. I played Sonic the Hedgehog every day until I beat it. Um, <laughs> and one of the interesting things that I didn't even think about is that I used to score my games musically. Um, and so instead of playing the game where you have like Sonic's actual sound, right? I would play CDs over the video games like in a way that the music matched to each wow wow do you remember some of the music you used back then yeah yeah it was mostly it was mostly mary j blige because it was the 90s and her first album uh was the 411 um coincides like almost exactly to each part of the game to the point where my sister recently told me she's like I don't even think I remember what the Sonic Hedgehog songs sound like <laughs> like I will forever you know associate um Sonic the Hedgehog with Mary J Blige that's so funny yeah yeah now were you did were you musical at all did you study any instruments I didn't until I was an adult. I didn't study until I was an adult. Um, my sisters both did. So my middle sister played the flute and she was really great with that. She was like first chair, everything. My youngest sister played the clarinet, same thing there. Um, I didn't play any instrument. I was mostly a writer. Like I wrote and I, I read books. That was, that was my jam. Um, but shortly before I turned 40, I decided that I wanted to make a list of like 40 things I wanted to accomplish before turning 40. And one of those things is I always wanted to learn how to play the drums. Um, and so shortly before quarantine, I started taking drum lessons and it was great. I had so much fun with it. I'm a little more rusty now because I had to quit during quarantine, but um, I loved it. I loved it. And I was like, I wish that I, I'd known that I could do this earlier because right. you know, when I was a kid, it was mostly guys, boys that played drums, you know, exactly. wasn't like thing that they, they thought that girls could do. But now I'm like, it could have been amazing. So. So when do you, when do you remember starting to write, writing your thoughts down and making up stories? Because I think you're a natural storyteller anyway, but when do you remember some of your first stories? Um, I guess when I was a little kid, I, you know, I, I think my earliest kind of memories of making up stories, other than making it up for my Barbie dolls, would be that I was the kid that my mom would send to the store for, um, on errands. And then, you know, it was the 80s, so you could do, you could do that. Right, right. Um, and I would make up stories and tell them to myself as I was walking to the store and it was probably like maybe like a 20 minute walk, you know, but I, every time I went, I would start the story from where I left off. And I, uh-huh. I, I was such a weird kid. I mean, I'm like literally telling the story out loud to myself walking to the store. 
Um, but I didn't think anything of it because I was having a great time. Um, I don't remember the details, but I know it was about an ant. It was about all, an ant. Yeah, and all about the you know the day to day things. You know, I I pretty much <laughs> invented a, a bug's life, <laughs> but you know, it wasn't my it wasn't my movie to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Weirdness is wonderful. We celebrate weirdness because that's what improv is. It's a bunch of weirdness, basically, I think. And it's, I got to say, and we're weird people. I mean, I always felt like, I don't know if you can relate to this at all. I used to feel like I didn't fit in anywhere. Like I didn't fit in with the cool kids or the jocks or whatever. I was just a bit different. And it took a long time before I discovered improv. And that became my mission my addiction my love my passion so um so you're doing all this writing were you taking any drama in school at all or plays no or i wasn't taking any drama um i always thought about auditioning for the school plays but i was always so nervous to audition in public um so i never did but i always um you know i read everything i could I wrote everything I could. English class was my favorite. Um, I I learned to read really early. I learned to read when I was two. Um, and so ever since then, I've just been kind of like a devourer of of words, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always like, I wanted to read everything. And my mom always has these stories where I would read books and I would run out of books to read. And so she would find me in the kitchen reading like the box, the, like the back of boxes and, <laughs> and things like that. Cause I was like, I have to read something. You know, I was that kid talking about something that doesn't fit in. I was that kid that read the encyclopedia for fun, you know? So it was, but it was something to read, you know, but yeah. To have a family that encouraged reading, I was very fortunate too. I had a grandmother and my dad and mom read to me a lot. And mm -hmm. I couldn't wait. I tried to teach my brother to read when he was about two, but he said he just finally memorized what I was saying to him because he never really, he, I wasn't a great teacher of reading. So do you remember some of the books that really impacted you as a child and as a young adult? Can you, I'd love to hear some of those. Yeah. I mean, I would say like my biggest uh, fandom back then when I was, you know, elementary, middle school was definitely the Babysitter's Club. Um, and I think a lot of people my age would, would, would say the same thing. Um, Sweet Valley High, Nancy Drew, the Boxcar Children, all of those things. And as I got closer to middle school, high school is when I started reading books that I probably shouldn't have been reading, like B.C. Andrews. You know, no kid needs to be exposed to flowers in the attic. <laughs> but again, it was the 80s, 90s, and people didn't care. So you read whatever you wanted to, you know. So reading V.C. Andrews, that led to me reading Daniel Steele. And then that led to me reading just anything I could possibly get my hands on. But the biggest, like, things that were, like, emotionally important to me were The Babysitter's Club, anything by Judy Bloom. Yes, uh, I was going to mention Judy Bloom. Yeah, yeah. And especially, like, you know, Are You There, Guys? Me, Margaret really kind of helped me kind of understand, like, what, like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> like, what is going on with my body and my life and how I feel about boys and how I feel about, 
my parents and all that. It was just a perfect book. Um, and I, I, I recently got to see her speak, see Judy Boom speak um, at an Emmy event. And it was just like surreal to see her like right there, this woman who changed wow, yeah. everyone's lives, you know, and that audience was full of women that were equally like, this is insane. Like she's right there. Like she has been there. Like she was my guiding star when I was a little girl, you know? Oh, what an opportunity. That's great. And so what was it like? The I don't want to jump before. I was going to ask what was it like the first time you went to the Emmys, but I still want to explore other stuff. But what was it like the first time you went to the Emmys? Uh, it was wild. It was wild. I mean, because of, you know, the because of quarantine, I started working in TV during, like towards the end of quarantine. So everything was virtual and I was still living in South Carolina. Um, and so I didn't meet my co-writers or the other women on our staff in person until the actual Emmys. Um, and so it was mostly like you get there and you're like, oh, these are the people I've been, I've spent four months on Zoom with and I'm seeing them in person and getting to talk to them and getting to hug them and things like that. And so it felt a little bit like a family reunion, um, a family reunion at a work party that celebrities are at, you know? And so it was just so much, it was so much, but you know, the, the whole process of even getting nominated for an Emmy was surreal to me because, you know, I started writing that, this was my first job, right? Writing for Black Ladies Get wow, wow. first job writing in TV. And so I didn't expect anything, like it was already, amazing that I had this job I was not expecting anything above that right and towards the end of it you know we find out that the show's being nominated for an Emmy um for variety sketch and then we found that we got nominated for writing and even then I didn't really understand um how that uh, you know connected to me like I was like oh yeah I wrote in the show but obviously like I'm a new person you know why would I be nominated for a writing Emmy but it I was, and all of us was, and we all were like, this is crazy, but also the best, the best thing. Um, and so I, I, I would say September of September of 2022 was just uh, an amazing time for me. And so affirming in this new career. Yes, yes, you know, yes. yes. Yeah, you don't like start, it's not usual for someone to start a new career and then get the laurels that come with that career within like the first six months, you know? And so, <laughs> I mean, it feels like being a football player, you know, your first season off the bench and you win the Super Bowl, you know, it, that that's how it felt to me. Um, and of course, being a Southerner, I'm going to try to connect things to football, but <laughs> um, yeah. yeah so it was great I mean but yeah it, it after a while I mean it felt it honestly felt like a work party but just celebrities in the wild just casually walking around you and okay you I would be starstruck I gotta admit I've yeah. told you I'm addicted to the Conan Needs a Friend podcast and when I get to LA I'm gonna camp outside the studio um but uh were there some people that were just truly mind-boggling for you or the whole experience. Yeah, 
Uh, I would say seeing RuPaul was wild to me because I'd loved RuPaul since I was a kid. Uh, I watched the RuPaul show. I watched RuPaul when uh, she was on um, the Arsenio Hall show, obsessed with this drag queen. And seeing RuPaul at this point in my career later was just, I didn't get to, I didn't get to meet RuPaul, but just seeing just seeing RuPaul in, in person was a full circle moment for me. And I and I've loved you know drag queens since I was a little girl, you know. So it was just that she was the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. And right there, you know. Oh my gosh, so beautiful! Oh, my beautiful in the clothes. Oh my gosh. So getting back to earlier years, you were writing, you were writing stories, and did you just did you discover improv before sketch did improv come first and so tell me about how you started in improv like the first class where was it and tell me a little bit more about that yeah um so i started in improv um i would say shortly before i turned 40 so i would say i was about maybe 34 35 maybe um i found improv almost by accident um in that i was friends with a lot of stand-up comedians in our local area. We have a pretty big um, and pretty thriving comedy community um, in Greenville, South Carolina. And so I knew a lot of people from that community and was curious about improv, but wasn't sure. And also didn't know if I had the money to do that, to, to take improv classes. Um, because, you know, one of the, I guess, one of the big differences between improv and stand-up is that you know, you start stand up, you can start stand up at any time and get great. And it's not going to cost you anything to do those reps and get better and all that. Whereas improv has more of a, a paywall, you know, so um, it's a little slower for people to, to get into that. But I actually won my first improv class. Um, I was working at a, at a, at a charity event and the one of the like silent auction items was a free level one um improv course and I didn't win it someone else actually won it but they didn't want it they just wanted to give money and so they donated the class to whoever wanted it it came wow there are no accidents that's true the universe did bring me put me in the right place at the right time to, to to accept that that blessing but I, yeah, I took my first class and it was during a time that was particularly tough for me, you know, tough for me at work, tough for me at life. Things were not great, but taking that first class and having on on the first day, the teacher say, her her name was Wendy, who I adore now to this day, saying like, you know, improv is not here to be scary. You know, you're literally adults playing pretend. And that's all it has to be. It doesn't have to be um, anything that's going to stress you out. You're just playing, you're just playing pretend games. And that gave me the space to kind of take a break from life at that point and just get silly for two hours a week. And that's when I fell in love with it. Um, And then immediately started taking the rest of my, the classes. And um, I ended up taking 
all the, all the courses offered at Alchemy up to the conservatory level. Um, and so and it took, took some time, you know, I had to do a lot of payment plans because I was working in education, but it- Oh, what were you doing? What were you doing in education? Uh, I was I was a counselor. I was I was working. Um, I was I started in admissions at Clemson University, and then I moved over to academic counseling. And so I was working with freshman engineering students, um, who are all amazing, and I miss them so much. Uh, but you, anyone who works with students and college students in particular, you know that you know being an academic advisor or an academic counselor maybe like 40% of your conversations are about actual academics and 60% are about what's going on in their lives. And if you're an 18, 19, 18, you know, year old kid, you know, trying to navigate your, your first year in college, a lot of what's going on in your emotions in your life, that is going to affect you academically, you know, it's like going having a job you're having your it's your first job you know and so if you're going through your first breakup odds are you are not concentrating on calculus at that point because you don't know how to like regulate those feelings to do that and so I worked for a long time with those students and then at towards the end of my career at Clemson I was working with graduate students who had a whole nother level of 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 things that they were working through but the 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 base level is is that these are human beings working through a very difficult degree program right. while right. still trying to live an actual balanced and fulfilled life they're just different different ages you know um and during that specific semester when i started in improv you know i'd had students that were um, I had more than one student, I would say like at least three that had attempted suicide or had extreme mental health issues or mental health issues through their parents that they were dealing with. And I think the biggest thing, and I, and I could talk about this all day long, but I think the biggest thing that people don't realize about college students is it's just, they're not having fun. I mean, they're having fun, obviously they're having a great time, but a lot of times, and you know this, I'm sure, mental health issues become more apparent in college because they are out of that safety bubble. Um, you know, their parents aren't either suppressing it or, you know, helping them kind of hide or whatever, you know? And so they're on their own and these are health issues and they're going to come apparent. And so they have to know how to deal with it on their own. And so and most times it helps, it goes great, and but sometimes it doesn't. And so for me, being an, an empathic person uh, who takes in all this information and creates stories from it, from it you, you, take, you, you can't help but take these emotions home with you. And so you are just like beaten down, you know, but, but you love, I love my students so much that it was okay. I mean, I was like, I wanted to take that emotion on for them. Um, but improv came along in my life at that point. And I honestly think that improv saved, saved my life, you know, yeah. you know, between my own mental health uh, trials and dealing with other people's, it was, it came at a point where I really needed it. And I think it, that's the same thing for every, everybody. I think people come to improv usually after something Big has happened in their lives, you know. We've had, and I'm sure you've had people that you've played with that have 
gone through divorces or had um have lost spouses or lost family members or lost their job or what have you um I, I came after I survived a brain surgery. I had a right cerebral aneurysm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Explain and it helped you, right? It helped you. Of course it did. Um, uh, you know, I was listening to an interview with uh, Dorsey Carden. She's an actor who's on The Good Place. Okay. And she went through UCB. She was kind of funny about going through UCB. You have to pay to perform there because you have to take all those levels and everything. Um, but she was talking, she, she's being asked about the fear of improv. And I know you've written some about that, about fear. And mm -hmm. were you feeling fear when you first got out there or what was it like for you? Um, I would say most of the fear was when it was time to have our class show. Um, and most of that is stage fright, you know, like I, I'm a pretty, outgoing person but at my core I'm more introverted and more shy than people realize and so having fun and you have that like closed kind of ecosystem with you and your class and your teacher you're having a good time being silly and discovering things about yourself together but that transition of having to kind of show all that to a whole new group of people it could be really scary and so I was really nervous and it was really hard for me but you know Wendy my teacher she taught me something that I teach to people to this day is that you know the the symptoms or the feelings of nervousness are usually the same as those for excitement yes yes the side of excitement is fear yep yeah yeah <laughs> So you can like trick yourself into knowing that you um you know you you have the 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 the, beat, the beating heart and the sweaty palms and you know just trick yourself into thinking like you're just really excited you're excited to play and you're so excited your body is just doesn't know where to place that energy and so that was probably the biggest thing for me as far as fear is it's concerned, but also improv, you know, more than people know, it kind of forces you to be vulnerable too. Absolutely. Because you're bringing your own life and you're bringing in the life of people that you know into your comedy. I mean, the base of improv is real life. And so a lot of the things that we do are based on your own experiences. You can't be have like a funny divorce scene unless you know you've known somebody or you you're, you've gone through divorce yourself you know and you're taking those real human emotions and putting it out there and people aren't and you're not putting it out there for people to laugh at but you're putting it out there for people to see themselves in it and that's where the comedy comes out right you see like yeah that is a ridiculous thing that we do to each other is just we just break up legally you know and so you put that in like a, a framework of like two cats getting a divorce which is usually what I tell people you're like you see the ridiculousness of that human experience and that's where the that's where the comedy comes from I love that I love that so um I know you've been very open about your own struggles with depression mm -hmm. and were you suffering from depression at all when you were going through improv or what was that related yeah, I would say I was going through a really hard time um, just with everything at work and in my own life. You know, I was uh, at that point, I would say I was at a point where I couldn't afford 
to take care of myself as far as, you know, taking meds and going to therapy and things like that, because those things are expensive. Um, and so at that point I was not on meds. I was not going through therapies and therapy and having that support. And so I was basically just kind of untreated, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, we, we don't, some people, people have, a, have trouble kind of accepting that depression is a medical issue and yes. if you're not being treated it can it it can be fatal you know or it can be um what's the word it, it it can really shake up your whole life and so I was at a point where I was at the end of my rope like I was just like I didn't think I was in any, any danger but I was I was just lost at that point and um, I think what I heard you say was that you saw your doctor and told him you were tired all the time, mm -hmm. tired. And the doctor suggested you see a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. That was in grad school. And so this was kind of after that fact where you kind of fall back into old patterns. Um, and I had to kind of fight my way back, you know, like I lost pretty much everything. I lost my, I was evicted from my apartment. I was sleeping on people's couches and I had absolutely no money. Um, but then that's when improv and then dealing with a very high stress, high emotional job. Um, and then that's where improv came into my life. Wonderful. Yeah. So um, sketch comedy, I, I took three levels of sketch comedy at a place called the sketch school uh, recently. And I'm in a writer's room with this wonderful teacher, Mark Rosowski and some other great people. And I didn't know all these different kinds of sketch. So let me hear about your sketch journey. Cause, and do you ever teach sketch writing to people? I don't teach it. Um, but I, I, I would say I've been doing improv for about 10 years and sketch. I would say I started kind of really focusing on sketch within the last three years. So really right before I got this job, um, I had taken classes, uh, online with, uh, with, with sketch, sketch, prof uh, instructors. Um, and then I got in, in, I got accepted to the Second City Conservatory to study sketch, uh, study improv to sketch writing, you know, um, which ironically I had to drop out because I got a professional job writing sketches. Um, <laughs> <Great. so laughs> I didn't finish. Yeah, I'm a Second City dropout. But um, yeah, sketch for me was really, it was really helpful at the time. It was really helpful for me to, benefit my improv and like taking the things and, and improving listening and taking in information and being able to remember little seeds of, of things that come out in your improv scene to create a story from, you know, and that's where that's, that's kind of how Second City teaches you is that you are doing improv first, but so you're doing improv specifically to benefit your sketch writing and to get ideas for sketches. And so that was a good way to kind of flip things on its head and, and use um, and use my, use my experience, use my knowledge and use what I was putting out there on stage for another purpose. And so I really enjoyed that. Um, and so I started in writing, you know, wanting to write for late night, you know, wanted to write for 
Letterman and Conan and all that too. And a lot of that comes with sketch writing. And so part of that was just me wanting to be the best kind of late night writer I could be. Um, and then over the, over the time, over time, I was learning all of these things. Opportunities came to submit for shows and then I submitted and, and got my, got my job. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. It's wonderful. And yeah. you, your, your job, you're going, you came to California for, um, and again, thank God that the strike is hopefully over. Um, that's, is that sketch writing or is it uh, scene writing or sketch writing? Uh, yeah. So my first job was for sketch writing. So just writing sketches. And then my second TV job, unfortunately the one I can't talk about, um, was writing episodic television. So um, it was for a, a children's show actually. And um, we were writing full half hour episodes, just like you would have for any, any primetime TV show that you would watch. Um, and so I got to expand that knowledge and I was already kind of learning when I was learning how to to be a screenwriter, I was learning not only the late night stuff, but how to write um, episode episodes. You know. Now you're a Muppet fan, aren't you? I am. I'm a huge Who Muppet fan. My a friend of mine was the costume designer for Jim Henson in Manhattan decades ago. Oh, and that's so going into that studio, being able to kind of hold and play with them. And uh, that that comedy in the Muppet Show was so great. So great. Yeah. yeah, I still watch it. I still watch it to this day and have a blast watching it. I will be here and I'm 44 now and will watch and just be and just laugh heartily by myself. But I've loved The Muppet since I was a little girl. Um, that and Sesame Street, you know? And so I think a lot for a lot of people, Sesame Street is kind of like everyone's introduction to The Muppets. But yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan to the point where when I first saw the original Fozzie in Atlanta, um, I cried. So <laughs> that's how deeply I love them. But um, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, Fozzie's my favorite one. So there's that. <laughs> Of course, I, I kind of like the pig myself. I identify with her. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's great. She's great. And she, she, I mean, she taught me a lot too. You know, I was a little chubby girl, you know, and she was a person that was beautiful, not in spite of being a pig, but being a pig was one of the things that was her, you know, that was um, one of her high points, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So now that you're in LA, because you, you you had to unpack and take everything out there. Did you drive out or did you take a van or? I actually, so I flew out. Um, so my moving to LA story is also a funny one in that I was in South Carolina for the whole of my job with Black Lady Sketch Show. And um, after that show ended, I didn't work for another year because it, it at the point it took it took takes a long time to get on another show you know and black lady sketch show they they usually will use a different writer's room for each season and that's kind of like how their their process goes um so I wasn't working for a year and I was at the point where I was like okay well maybe this was a kind of a flash in the pan I need to go back to regular life right 
But then I found out I'd been nominated for, for the Emmy. And so my my whole plan was to go to LA for a weekend, for Emmy's weekend, because the network was paying for us to go. And I was going to go for the weekend and then come back home and then figure out what I was going to do next for my life. But at that point, I was hired on my my second job. And so I ended up having to come to LA a week earlier. And it was a four-month contract. And so my even my plan then, it was like, I'm just going to, you know, keep everything in South Carolina. I'll stay in Airbnbs and see where it goes, you know. But after Amy's weekend, I think something kind of clicked in me and it was like, okay, no, I'm here. Like, I need to be here. This, I think this career has legs. If I'm at the, literally sitting at the Emmys, you know, I think I need to like, this is a sign to pursue this. So I came already having a, a job, started working. And then, you know, there was a point where I had to go back and go back to South Carolina for like a couple of weeks, clean out my apartment and come back. And I was still working. So it wasn't even like a social thing. I just came back, shut down my life. And, and so I kind of Irish exited South Carolina, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. so beautiful, though. And L.A. is so beautiful. I've only been there once, but I'm going to be out there again, stalking Conan, as I said. Yeah. Um, and uh, are you going to be now you'll be busy writing, so you won't be teaching at all then, you think? Or do you think? Um, no, I mean, I think because I taught for so, so long, I was, I taught for about five years and I was executive producer of our, our company, um, for, for five years that my whole goal in coming out to LA, as far as improv is concerned, is I wanted to have the experience of being more of a free agent and that I didn't, I wasn't, um, beholden to any specific theater uh, or a specific team, I was just going to play when someone had an opportunity for me to play. And that was all that I needed. Um, and I've had opportunities to do that. So it's been great. And it's also great to have a good reputation um, for being a good player. So people invite you to come play, right? But the uh, same thing with teaching. Like, I just, I'm like, I kind of just want to enjoy being a, just a player right now. And that's, that's, that's yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's so wonderful. And again, I mentioned that group that's playing um, one, every third Thursday or something like that. It, yeah. Is that at the West Side? Where is that anyway? Um, um, it's at a place called the Write-Off Room. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little small club, but it's super fun. I bet. Now, are there any things in LA or California that like as a tourist you wanted to see? Um, so one of the things I love whenever I go to a city, and this could be here in the U.S. and overseas in Europe, um, I am one of those people that loves those like hop on, hop off, hop off like tours, you know, mostly because you can just be lazy and that's a cheap way to get around the city. But you just get on, this, on, the, on the bus, you listen to the presentation, and if you're ready to get off, you get off. And if you're ready to go to the next part, you do. And I think it's just a fun way to, to spend the day and learn the city. And it's one of those things that's low pressure if you are like, you know what, there's there's food over there. Let's get off and have lunch. You can do that. So I, I do want to go and do one of those tours in L.A. and, and do one of those like kind of crazy uh, celebrity home tours, even though I'm not I'm still not sure that the homes that they point out are actual homes um, that <laughs> people live in. But I don't know. I like I like corny touristy things like that. 
that's exactly what I love to do. And I used to live in Manhattan, but I still love taking those tour buses in Manhattan. I always learn something new. Now, where's your camera and your photography right now? What's going on with that? Um, so for photography, I haven't gone out uh, exploring in a few years. Um, and it's mostly, if we can delve into politics, um, it's mostly just because of the, the Trump administration. Um, it stopped being as safe as it was. I mean, the, when you work in abandoned buildings, it's already physically unsafe to do that. Um, and I usually strongly suggest people to not do it, not do it alone. Um, I've had experience for years, so I know how I like, take care of myself, but people can get really hurt. That's usually my caveat to people. But, you know, the sad thing is a lot of the places that have these old abandoned homes and closed factories and closed mills and things like that are usually populated by people who were Trump voters. And so in my mind at the time, it wasn't necessarily a safe thing for a Black woman to get caught trespassing passing in a home during that era of our 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 time you know and so I took a step back um but I'm eager to get back into it and I'm eager to get back to it on the west coast and see what the west coast has to offer and and see a whole new kind of level of abandonment because it's going to be different here you know in the south one of the things about the south is when something's not working you don't necessarily even if you build something else you don't necessarily get rid of the old thing because we love tradition you know so you can you can have a family that lives in the house for a hundred years. The house can go completely pot, but if they build their new house, it's usually right next to the old house. And so I think Southern abandonment is going to look a lot differently than Western abandonment. And you know, I'm not even talking about like Midwest. Like I'm not talking about like abandoned like ghost towns. I'm like, what do their mills look like? Are they more industrial? Are they more, you know, mills in this in the South are gorgeous. When they built those those mills in the 20s, they were brick mills with filigree in the walls and beautiful blue glass and things like that. And so the architecture in and of itself is beautiful. But the West Coast being newer, I don't know what those mills look like. So I'm fascinated to see what that's going to be like. Oh, and there's all these places that were made for sets that have been abandoned, not just in the major studios, but around LA. I mm -hmm. mean, I think be fascinating really fascinating so i can't wait to see your photography i'm going to be sharing on the podcast when we publish it the links to your photography and other things about you so that our listeners can find out more about this incredible woman who i am expecting to see at the oscars next time oh uh, yeah <laughs> So it's just brilliant. I've enjoyed this time so much. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me. And it's been a special time. So of course. Of course. It was it was a pleasure. And um, you know, like I said, I can talk about improv and improv and the Muppets and depression and storytelling for hours. So anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'd love to play with you sometime. Um, I think playing with different people is so good and even people that, you know, different levels. So uh, maybe sometime we'll be able to play together, not today. But um, so thank you again for your time and um, you're a wonderful person. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And you show that dreams do come true.
Oh, I love it. I love it. Yes, they do. Just chase them. <laughs> Okie doke. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.